you're not already there, take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We have been going through Nehemiah this year, and we're a little over halfway done, starting in chapter 9 today. Chapter 8 that we talked about last week has really set the stage for the rest of the book of Nehemiah. So if you missed last week, um, or you need to go back and reread chapter 8, please do. They, it was uh, it, it was all about remembering, right? Because they were dwelling in these tents, these booths, and they, they did it to, the, to remember God's deliverance from Egypt and from the wilderness and all of those things. And so chapter 8 is important. And, and in it, we see the rumblings of revival, and this this begins which with the people recognizing their sin and remembering what God has done and who he is. So that's what chapter 8 sets us up for in chapter 9. And so as we, as we look at chapter 9, we see the people remembering again. The Feast of Booths helped them to recall God's love for them and his work in their history. And now they're going to recall their own role in history. And unfortunately, it's not a celebration. There are a lot of parallels that we can draw from chapter 9 with our own lives. And so I'm going to just kind of interject some moments as we go through for us to just pause and evaluate and to see. Because chapter 9 deals with the unfinished work or the unfinished business of chapter 8, verse 9. Just glance back at chapter 8, verse 9 with me. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Right, And then the leaders came and said, hold on, there's a time for that, now's not it, now's the festival of the booths, we're going to celebrate. A week has gone by or so, and now we're back to the unfinished business of this. And so I want to read, <clears throat> starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Stick with me, especially as we get through some of these names. We'll go through verse 31. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the, on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabane, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani again, a different one, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshabneah, boy, I'm really butchering these, I'm sorry. Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, those were a little easier, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your gracious, your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. 
You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his, of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and statutes and a law, uh, statutes and commandments, verse 14, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go on, go in it, go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God, ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God. Who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years. You sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. Verse 25. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, Vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies 
who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them. And warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. Or forsake them. For you are gracious and merciful God. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we take moments this morning to consider the history of your people. I don't think it's lost on us how similar our stories can be. And we read this repetitious cycle of deliverance and peace and rest and disobedience and bondage and then deliverance again and over and over. And Lord, I can just think back to my own heart And see the same cycle play out. And so as we, as we consider these things today, Lord, I would pray that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't just look at this in a, in the physical sense of like, boy, those, those Israelites really were a a messy lot. Um, but instead we would consider our own role in history. And, Take note of your great mercy in our own life. Thank you for this word that's challenging and encouraging, and I pray that it would fall on open ears today in your name. Amen. So the, the hard truth of this passage is that if you are a sinner, you can identify with this, can't you? Right? I mean, we, we went, they rehearsed their history, Nehemiah, in this prayer does. I was thinking about this this week. Um, if you don't, if you don't sweep your floors at home, so especially if you've got hardwood floors, if you don't sweep your ho- your floor at home, what's going to happen? Okay, the the walk the walking paths are probably going to remain relatively clear because it gets scooted away, but along the edges of of the room, like along the baseboard and stuff, so I see some of you smiling, like you're you know what I'm talking about. There there begins to be a collection. You know what I mean? Like not an intentional one, but the dust bunnies and the dirt and the crumbs of food from kids that don't eat where they're supposed to. And all of these things get scooted up against the edges of the wall and it's just full of debris and it accumulates there. And if you don't clean it, it can be a a, a problem. I I think just about, about laundry or dishes. If you don't do laundry for a week, what collects in the closets? Mounds of clothes. Like, I didn't know we had that many clothes. Clothes. 
Same with dishes. If you left your dishes and didn't wash one for a week, I mean, you're going to be eating over the trash can a lot probably, but it's just going to be a pile. It's going to be a mess. Nobody likes that. Now, if, if there's one thing that my wife has taught me, and it's taken years for her to teach me this, it's, it's a good truth. It's that if you just clean up a little bit at a time as you go, your floors don't look like a racetrack right with all the pieces of rubber around the edges it, you can keep you can keep it relatively clean same with the dishes same with laundry you just do a little bit at a time now nehemiah doesn't deal with those with dishes and laundry and dust and that sort of thing it deals with the accumulation of sin over the years it's detailed it's it's not just detailed but it's this admonition of of the history of disobedience by, by their people, by their forefathers, by them. Now, zoom back out with me for just a moment in, in the book of Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah, Jason's talked with the kids about this each week. Nehemiah, really the first six chapters kind of deal with the wall and some of the drama surrounding that. With chapter five in there kind of as a, as a, hey, love one another kind of a thing. Uh, chapter seven is that, re, that genealogy. Who is true Israel? Their names are on the list. It's them. They're really supposed to be here. Chapter 8 was uh, the instruction of the importance of knowing and being shaped by God's word. Chapter 9 today reflects on personal sin, reflects on corporate sin and God's answer for it. And then chapter 10 in the future, in a couple of weeks, is going to talk about and review the covenant that the people are going to make at the end of this as part of the revival that is sweeping into Jerusalem. The people are going to make a covenant with God and they're going to sign their name. When you bought a house, you signed your name because you were responsible for keeping up with your payments. And the people of God are going to sign their name because they're going to be held responsible. That's chapter 10. So chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 even, we could probably lump together as this, this idea of a covenant renewal because the people there are focused on the word of God, the law that's being read, and also what they're supposed to do concerning that law. Now if you look at verse 1, you see some phrases that are probably common in, in Scripture but not in 2023. So... Chapter 9, verse 1, after the celebration, they were all assembled together with fasting. That's sort of common, but here's where it gets a little strange. In sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So in sackcloth and earth on their heads or dust on their heads or ashes on their heads, this is just an outward expression of a grieving heart. Okay, They would oftentimes tear their clothes before they put sackcloth on. And these, these were just signs of intense sorrow. This is what's happening here. When the people hear the word of God, the book of the law, and they see how we, we have not measured up. For hundreds of years, our, our families have not measured up. It caused this, this not a panic, but this, this sorrow, this repentance. And by fasting, the people were saying, we're so troubled over our sin that even food seems unimportant right now. And by putting on sackcloth, they were saying, we're so troubled by our sin that the normal comforts of life just don't seem important right now. 
And they, they put earth or dust on their heads and they were saying, we're so troubled over our sin that the humiliation that comes with being dirty and having this on our heads is unimportant. There's something more important than these things. So they took care. Remember at the last uh, end of chapter 8, they're, they're celebrating. It's the festival of the booths. They're dwelling in tents. They're celebrating. But now... Their sin is right in front of them. It's being rehearsed. And I think, I think this is a place that we really don't like to be. If we, if we just pause and just self-reflect for a moment, most of the time, and you can see this played out in your own life, but you can see it played out in just about every movie that ever, ever made. We, we would, people would rather go to great lengths to cover their sin or excuse their sin or blame somebody else for their sin, or make excuses for it, or ignore it altogether, than actually deal with it, right? But there comes a day when every person has to face their sin head on. That's not hopefully just a trite statement that you hear me say. Because I believe that it's true. See, a Christian faces their own sin when they recognize how it separates them from God as the people are doing here, when they confess it, when they repent of it, and when they trust in Jesus alone for salvation from their sin. Those without Christ will face their sin the moment they breathe their last. And the moment that they're standing before the throne of God in judgment, where the accumulation of their sin will fall on them and bring the wrath of God. And so I think, I think this is a true statement. I think it's certain every person will face their sin in this life or in the one to come. You will face your sin. You can't ignore it. You can't hide it forever. And the people that face it head on are here in chapter nine with outward expressions of their inward lament with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This was a big deal. And verse 2 tells us that all those who were identified in chapter 7, right, the genealogy, that they separated themselves from everybody else to, to make things right before God. And they do some really important things in this process. You can just see them in verse 2 and 3. Number 1, they confess their sins. This is true of us. Number 2, they confess the sins of their fathers. Number 3, they read the word of God. Number four, they worship the Lord. And I, I like, and I want to point out how uh, Yahweh is described as the Lord, their God. Okay, we're, we're getting ready to recount all of these terrible atrocities that Israel has committed. And he's starting it off by reminding the people that he is the Lord, their God. In fact, four times in those two verses, God's described as the Lord, their God or your God. I think it's to remind the people of God's great covenant that he made with them. In fact, he talks about that with Abram right, at the bit, right off the bat. It was instituted with their forefathers and continued to that day. And it reassured them that God was their God and he was their people still. And so with that, with that comfort, because that is a comfort, I think. With that comfort in mind, we see humility rise. We see it increase. And I, I think that that's still the case today. 
If you remind a believer of God's great work in their life, his redeeming love for them, uh, his watch care over their lives in the past and currently, um, you, you remind them of all the goodness of God. What doesn't rise up is pride and arrogance, does it? Because they recognize that doesn't, that's all that goodness, it's not a result of my own work. It comes from the mercies and grace of God. And so as we reflect on maybe our own sin, but certainly on the work of the Lord, gratefulness and praise rise, not arrogance. Humility increases. And I think that's the way that it's supposed to go. It's because of this that Christians are willing to stand up and to confess their sins. It says for a quarter of the day, they read the word of God. And then for a quarter of the day, what did they do? They confessed their sins. And this prayer led the charge in this. Christians will only confess their sins and repent because of the, of the work that God has done in their life and in their heart. And the people of God in Jerusalem do this, but they also confess the, the sins of their fathers. And I think that's important that he points out here. Because especially for the Jews, they really um, venerated, almost idolized the fathers. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Adam, these guys. So they were almost lifted up in this great way. And here in this, in this prayer, these guys are, they're not taken down a notch, but they're, it's just admitted they messed up too. Not only have we missed the mark, but our forefathers who we regard as some of the most godly people, they missed the mark too. And yet, these were God's people. He dearly loved them, but they had plenty of reason to repent still, didn't they? And I think this is true for Christians today. Repentance isn't something that you just do once the moment that you're saved, but something that continues increasing as you grow closer to Jesus. You continue to repent. In fact, the distance between sin and repentance should be getting shorter and shorter, right? As we grow closer and closer to Jesus, Charles Spurgeon says this, Repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it's the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. They go together. This act of humility here in uh, chapter 9 um, and, and repentance, it comes just days after celebrating God's provision and faithfulness and goodness. But I think that's kind of also a natural progression of Christians, isn't it? I think uh, these negative and positive cycles play in. I mentioned this last week. I mentioned that if you are not in the habit of reading God's Word regularly you don't realize how much you need it and then it puts you even further out of the practice and it's this negative cycle that just keeps getting worse. But the positive is also true. The more you read the word of God, the more you recognize you need it and love it as a Christian and the more you want to read it and so that positive cycle then begins and continues. And I think that the same thing can kind of be said here. This is another instance of it. You hear God's word like the people did, and then you repent because of the Spirit's conviction in your heart. The Spirit is saying, yes, 
you've messed up here. The people heard the word of God and then they repented and confessed their sins. And you, you, then you celebrate God for who he is, what he's done for you, and your heart is filled with gladness, thankfulness, celebration. But in, in rem, being reminded of God's goodness, we're then also, again, reminded of our own falling short of his faithfulness. And then that cycle of praise kind of continues going. And this is what we see here. And as Jason aptly reminded us today, revival begins with the Bible. Is that how you said it? This is what is happening here. A, fur, a, a sure first step of revival is being broken over your sin. And this is what God's word brings about in the life and heart of a sinner. Being broken over God's word and over your own sin. And this is what's happening here. And the, the leaders take charge in leading this kind of a prayer, verses uh, 4 and 5, they lead them in this. And this is quite a prayer. This is thought to be the longest prayer recorded in Scripture, what we see here in chapter 9. And it's reflective of that cycle that I just mentioned. It begins with praise, right? The leaders say, hey, stand up and give praise to the Lord. And then if you flip all the way to the end of the chapter, you see it also ends in praise, which is appropriate. Uh, to praise someone or something means to speak well of it. So if you're praising the Lord, you're speaking well of Him, and it begins with the Levites calling all the people to stand up and do that very thing. What we have in this prayer is kind of like Nehemiah's interpretation of the whole Old Testament so far. It's, it's sort of like his theological summary of history. And just quickly, let me break it down. You can write this down. I think this might be in your notes, but uh, 5 and 6, praising the God of creation. They praise God for all that he's created and has sustained even today. Verse 7 and 8, remember Abraham and the covenant that God made. The biggest section, verses 9 through 21, just reflects on the exodus and the wilderness. 22 through 25, talk about Israel's conquests and God's provision in all of that. And then verses 27 through 30 kind of rehashes the cycle of Israel's relationship with God, especially in the book of Judges. And then sprinkled throughout, like verse 16, are phrases like this. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. And verses like 26... Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who'd warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. So I appreciate what the leaders in Jerusalem are doing at this point. They're not sugarcoating their past, are they? They're not trying to explain it away. They're not trying to make excuses for the disobedience of their forefathers or them. They're not sugarcoating it. They're not excusing it. But they're not trying to forget it either. I think that's important for us to remember. There are parts of our own history, our own stories, that if we're real honest, we would probably just like to forget all about, right? Times when we've messed up difficult times in our lives that have been brought about by our own bad decisions or just difficult situations no matter what. 
We maybe don't celebrate those moments when we're recounting our history, but we shouldn't forget them either. Because as the old saying goes, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. And that's true for the people here and true for us, I think, too. You can't retell the faithfulness of God in your life properly by skipping over all of the hard parts. Nehemiah and the leaders of Israel lead the people in remembering their sin, recognizing it for what it is, rebellion, and then calling them back to the mercies and patience of God. And I don't, I don't intend to, to beat a dead horse here, um, but you, you just can't get past the stark comparison between the description of the people and the description of God. And so on your notes, there's a couple of boxes that I left blank for you just to, to jot some of these down. I want to just mention them because that's what this prayer is about. It's this comparison and contrast. So here's how, here's how the people describe themselves. Okay. They acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They were disobedient and rebelled. They cast God's law behind their back. Are any of these hitting home to you? Maybe not this next one. They killed God, God's prophets. But if we continue on, it says they committed great blasphemies. They did evil. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They sinned against God's rules. They would not give ear. And there's more that you can find in this prayer. Now, this is not painting a very good light, painting the, the Israelites in a very good light, is it? This is not trying to, to forget their past or shove it down or explain it away. This is full recognition. This is what we need to do when we confess our sin, brothers and sisters. It, it's not a, Lord, I'll, I'll open this area of my heart to let you deal with that, but I'm going to keep this back because it's, I need it. This is a full confession. This is bu- almost bullet point by bullet point of all the things that the people had failed in. And it reveals their character, doesn't it? Now look at how God is described. He, they say, you have kept your promise. You are righteous. God gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. He is ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, did not forsake them, sustained them, warned them in order to turn them back to his law, and he bore with them. And as, as Nehemiah goes through their history, almost like era by, by era, Section by section, he points out the differences between the people and their God. And guys, the differences couldn't be more massive. The the chasm couldn't be wider. A couple more things I want to mention this morning in our time together. Um, But before I do, let me give you an encouragement. Or maybe even a challenge this week. It's going to require, get this, 15 minutes of your time. Maybe the Lord may give you increased time in that, but here's just, here's a challenge that I'd like for us to think through and to maybe do this week. Take some time in the coming days to sit down and write out your own story in, in similar fashion as to what the people do here in chapter nine. 
Consider the eras of your own life. Reflect on your own responses like the, like the people do here. Reflect on your own responses, but reflect on the work of God in your life. I'd encourage you, write it down. Take the time. Pen and paper, computer word processing, whatever it might mean. But just physically write it down. And I expect that when we do this, our history is going to look a lot like the Israelites' history in chapter 9. I expect we're going to be able to identify times of great joy in our life, of deliverance from the Lord, and then in not too much time passes, we're going to see rebellion, disobedience, sin. But I think it'd be a good practice for us in seeing the same way that the Israelites do here. Now, let me make a couple of observations before we close. Go to verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. That's Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? That's creation. That is who God is. And before Nehemiah ever mentions the, the people, they ever mention themselves at all, they, they start with God as a good creator. So in your own story, recognize God as a good creator. It's right and appropriate to do because he's the creator of everything. But Nehemiah is quick to point out that he's the preserver of it all too. And all of this spurs on worship. Look at the next couple of verses, verse 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his off, give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promises for you are righteous. He chose Abraham and kept his promise, not because Abraham was righteous, Altogether, but because God was righteous altogether. Now imagine, imagine that you are put in charge of a building project. Now, I don't know about a wall like Nehemiah was in charge of, but just imagine you're in charge of any building project, okay? And now imagine that the workers that you have to complete this project are like the Israelites. Okay, so you're the building, you're the project manager, and you've got people like the people of Israel who are your workers. Chances are you start really excited and hopeful, right? All right, we're going to do this. We can do this. A few things go wrong. Okay, that's not a big deal. We can overcome this. But it piles on and the, the problems come and the people are arguing and they're not taking care of one another. They're cheating each other. They're doing wrong things, and chances are when you've got a people under you that constantly want to rebel and not listen and turn stiffened necks to their leader, you're going to lose your patience, aren't you? Lose your, some, some of us will lose it real fast, okay? 
even the most patient human being has a breaking point, right? And when you hit it, your attitude can change. And oftentimes it reveals your true character. This is kind of my point in this. It's this. None of the failure, none of the rebellion of the people ever caused God's character to change. None of it. He was still good. He was still faithful. And look at verse 10 as it puts it there. He made a good name for himself and it's still the same good name today. God's character hasn't changed and it wasn't affected by the rebellious people under him. Another observation, notice how often their prayer remembers that God hears their cries or God sees their affliction and then acts on their behalf. In fact, several times they're recounting their history, all the rebellion, and they say, yet God did not forsake them. This should be an encouragement to you. I hope that it is today. These are listed in your, in your notes. You can visit them later in reflection of this. But Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 1, Isaiah 62, Psalm 9, Psalm 55, Psalm 94, Hebrews 13. And verse by verse by verse throughout Old and New Testament testify to the truth that God does not forsake his people. So as you, as you write down your own history this week, reflect on the wonderful truth that God has not forsaken you either. And he will not forsake you. He still hears. He still sees. He still rescues his people. As we finish today, I just want to direct your word or your attention to a word in verse 26 and verse 31. This is in the English translation. There's a word here that it's just a small word. It's only used a couple of times, but I think it carries a lot of weight. And I just want to point it out. It's the word nevertheless. It's usually used to contrast two things, kind of like saying, well, in spite of that, nevertheless, and then it goes on to kind of pose the contrasting statement or argument. But notice how it works in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed their, killed your prophets. Nevertheless. So what's the, that's the contrasting statement. What came before it? That's contrasting against it. Look at, look at verses, uh, 20 and 21. You gave your good spirit to them. And did not withhold manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't even wear out. Their feet didn't swell after 40 years of walking. Look at verse 23. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And then verse 26 comes and hits us with this nevertheless. And it cuts a little bit deeper, doesn't it? God's blessed you with all of these gifts and these good things. Nevertheless, you rebelled. You turned away. You stiffened your neck against this good God. In spite of all the good and gracious things that he brought, they complained. They 
stiffen their necks. Nevertheless, that, that word here kind of brings this sense of, of guilt, of regret, maybe even of, of embarrassment to them. But the point was, and the hope was, that it would bring about repentance. And thankfully, it's not the last use of the word in our text for today. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 is speaking to God, acknowledging the sins of those who came before them. And they're saying, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Guys, there are real life consequences for that kind of disobedience. And you can easily see how Israel's history is just littered with them. A couple of different times in this prayer, they say, God gave us over, God gave them over to the people to rule over them. So this is just a reminder, don't take the discipline in your own, of the Lord in your own life lightly. There's still real consequences to pay. And yet, verse 31 kind of enters the chat here and uses that word again, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. You did not forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is the redeeming nature of the character of God. His people are to be God's own possession, right? The ones that he's called by name. People by which his glory is to be made known to the nations. So God's got a vested interest in these people. And he's going to bring them where they ought to be. And sometimes he uses difficult situations to get them there, right? Does that also ring a bell in our own lives? Nevertheless, he is a gracious and merciful God. And these words are the same in verse 26 and in verse 31. But I like to think of the one in 31 as a little bit bigger. Yet nevertheless, in verse 26, God's done all of these things and you sinned. But in verse 31, it almost trumps everything else. Nevertheless, God is merciful and gracious. Now, this doesn't mean that he ignores sin, right? We just want to be clear. This doesn't mean that he turns a blind eye to rebellion. It doesn't also mean that he just sweeps sin under the rug He doesn't do those kinds of things because then he wouldn't be just. Now, way back when God renewed the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, the Lord passed before Moses and declared something about himself that is demonstrated in our prayer here in Nehemiah chapter 9. You can jot this down, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says to Moses that he demonstrates in this prayer. He says, the Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God is, just and merciful. And you think about that. Think about a God who is merciful, who forgives sin, but also a God who is just. Those two things are never in conflict with one another in God. How can that be? How is that possible? If we looked at a judge today who lets a guilty person go free, we would say that they're a bad judge. 
And yet God is not that way. So how can they never be at conflict? How can his mercy and his justice never be in a conflict with one another? It's a person. Jesus Christ. That's how. Turn, last, last thing, turn to 1 Timothy. This is how. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one, verse 13. It's Paul saying, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's justice and mercy are never in conflict with one another because of Christ. Because right now, God is still not dealing with us according to how our sins deserve. That's what he says in Psalm chapter 103. But instead, how is he dealing with us? According to his great patience. And he's only able to be patient with the sinner because of Christ. In, in Christ, your story, like Paul's, it tells, this, it tells this, the bigger story of divine patience. And divine mercy. And God was patient with you. As you wandered away from him. Scorning his son. Treasuring the things of this world. Scarcely giving him or his gospel. Even a thought. God was patient with you. God is patient with you even now. As you daily find need for forgiveness and grace. And God will be patient with you tomorrow and the next day and until the day of Jesus Christ when he finally finishes the good work Philippians 1 says that he's begun in you Christian as you consider your story remember that Jesus is this nevertheless in verse 31 nevertheless that changes everything he is the patience of God and he's calling to you if you've not responded to that call, recognize how much your story lines up with chapter 9 of Nehemiah and their story. Littered with sin and rebellion. But recognize too that God is patient, enduring with you now even still. But it may not always be that way. And so the call today is to respond. Not just listen and say, hey, that's great news. But now to respond to the news and to believe and to have faith and to put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Christian, I'd encourage you think of your own story this week, write it down even and let all of the cycle of rebellion and celebration and humbleness and then in rebellion and sin, let all of that drive you to the arms of a gracious and merciful father. Let's pray. God, 
I don't think I have to convince any of us of our own sin. And we've looked at a lot of passages about it, a lot of words describing it, at least for the Israelites. And I know that we can identify. And so, Lord, I pray that we can also identify as we move from a recognition of sin to a confession of sin to a repentance of sin and to a celebration of the goodness that we have through Jesus Christ. How he went to the cross and became sin. That we knew no sin so that we might become your righteousness. So Lord, first, we need to be convinced that our sin is bad enough that we'd be separated from you. So do that work through your spirit today, Lord. Convict. But then also, Lord, I pray that you would give, give joy and hope in remembering that your patience is displayed in Jesus Christ who's, who's calling, who's waiting. And so, Lord, I would pray that the hearts of unbelievers this morning would be so moved by this truth that they would respond in faith and that Christians that are hearing this would be encouraged and inspired all over again to worship the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Pray these things in his great name. Amen.